Hey, Fraudcast fans. Matt is still out for one more week, but never to fear. I think we got a legitimate uh, treat for you guys this week. I got Billy Corbin coming back to the show. Cocaine Cowboys, 537 votes. The U, uh, Screwball. I think he's been on uh, like three, maybe four times. By far the most times of uh, any, most broadcast appearances for any director so far. Um, He's always... A fun time. Um, this week he has got, uh, God forbid, his movie opening on Hulu. It's a documentary about uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., the uh, son of Jerry Falwell and the uh, the dean, president, whatever he is, of Liberty University. Uh, he was the one who uh, had the thruple with a uh, Miami pool boy who he was letting sleep with his wife or filming sleep with his wife. They had a whole swinger thing going on and he got embroiled in a scandal and eventually had to uh, give up uh, his job at Liberty. Um, And it turns out that uh, his relationship with this pool boy might've resulted in him getting blackmailed into supporting uh, Trump in the, 2016 election Uh, anyway it's a really good documentary and uh the story kind of goes everywhere so we had a lot of stuff to talk about and a lot of different directions to go um i thought it was you know an interesting basically the Falwells are very much like the righteous gemstones it's sort of like silicon valley in that uh the reality it was probably a little too outrageous for the fiction they had to they had to tamp it down a little bit for the righteous gemstones um, so anyway, uh, God forbid is, uh, is the name of the movie. And I think that's about all you need to know. And here is my talk with me and Billy. All right. Oh, Vince, so, can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Now I got you. Yo, how How's you it? doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks. Oh, you got that. You got the Emmy on the, on the wall behind you. That's a flex. Oh, I didn't see, Oh, Emmy. I didn't see you back there. <laughs> I just, <laughs> flex, yeah. How's it going? It's big too. It's one of the real ones. It's like it's way back there. But oh yeah, it's big. It's a it's a menace that thing. I, I mean, I could, I mean, I'm surprised someone hasn't written a horror movie where like someone uses it to like like as a serial killer. Uh huh. Uh, it's fucking treacherous that thing. You're doing like a top secret uh, perspective trick on me because it's like. Oh yeah, it's yeah the phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, oh, oh my god Jesus. yeah you could brain someone with my, that then my head yeah and, and these things are like fucking murderous that's great it's ridiculous yeah um but uh <laughs> i love that movie early, oh shit, early val kill i mean real genius top secret jesus all that stuff yeah i love that one i think i mean th- as far as like visual comedy i don't know that there's ever been anyone that matches top secret I remember there was a one of these making of you know, like HBO first look old school things. Like, I think it might have been Naked Gun two and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were interviewing um, the Zucker brothers mother who has a cameo in all of their shit. And she was on set doing her cameo for Naked Gun 2, and they're, like, interviewing her about their career. I'm pretty sure this is what it was from. And I remember them asking, like, what is your favorite movie of theirs? And she's like, of course, my favorite movie of theirs was their biggest flop. <laughs> like, it was, 
their biggest failure because I thought Top Secret was just brilliant and no, and it made no money or whatever. <laughs> it was like yeah. it was a total failure. Well, the biggest uh, flop I, before they went to their like weird right wing heel turn in the aughts or whatever. When it was just all like Islamophobic kind of, <laughs> yeah. of like 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 rot, like jingoistic post nine eleven shit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. When they became really funny, like Dennis Miller. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, the golden guy who I like fucking idolized, you know, throughout like the late eighties into the. I have the Rance books probably somewhere. Uh, he, here they are, the fucking Dennis Miller, like three Rance books. Holy you know, shit! That were just his collected monologues from HBO, and like, like they're out of frame. You notice? Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <like>, R.I.P. <laughs> Go easy, bro. Pour a little out. Yeah. Homies who can't be here. Yeah. <laughs> Good all right God. well i'll ask you about your movie um is there so is there like a bat signal with a siren on it that goes off in your office every time there's a miami cuban involved in a scandal of some kind <laughs> no alfred likes to uh joke that um that uh you know when people get released from prison in florida their first call is to their mother and their second call is to us and rack and tour to make a documentary about them but i probably told you that when on screwball because that like literally happened like mm-hmm. people on their in, in in Tony's case, he was on his way to prison. In fact, when he uh, when he called us, but this is one of those things that we did not chase. This story, the story came uh, to us, and uh, we had tracked it. We were aware of it. The property at eight ten Alton Road that they own together to this day, by the way, mm-hmm. postscript. Um, that you know pie chart in the dock. That is the same situation today as it was back then in, in 2013, 2014. To where so, like the Falwells own 50% and John Carlo yeah, owns that he, a quarter. That he's got, what, 50.1%. Jerry Falwell III, Trey, the eldest son, owns 25 and John Carlo has 24.9. To this day, right now, I mean, it's weird. But I mean, the whole thing's weird. But this obviously is like even weirder to think uh, that that's where they're at. But um, but. June 3rd, 2020, I got an email, what Alfred calls over the transom, which means someone went to rackandtour.com, clicked contact, and it landed in some info at box, mm-hmm. and which Alfred will periodically check to see if there's anything of interest. And on this particular week, um, it was subject Giancarlo Granda, dash pool boy, dash Jerry Falwell Jr. and Donald Trump, dash story. And he had me at Giancarlo Granda. Um, obviously, Pool Boy was, you know, the, 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 the clincher, but I knew we knew who that was. Mm-hmm. We knew who Giancarlo Granda was. I mean, since about 2018, since Aaron Rostin wrote that first um, BuzzFeed article about Jerry Falwell Jr. and the pool attendant that he and his wife had met at the Fountain Blue, who less than a year later is a real estate millionaire in this $4.65 million property eight blocks away from our office, we were obviously intrigued. Um, uh, no one really knew what the truth was back in 2018. So for two years before Giancarlo came forward, the blogosphere and the Twitterverse filled in those blanks with the most sensational, salacious version of, you know, that their imagination could possibly muster, mm-hmm. which was not far from the truth as, right, it, right. as it, as it turned out. But, um, but we thought that this could 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 this would definitely be an onion that would continue to peel over time, and we would obviously keep an eye on it and track it. And um, I had been to that liquor store that was one of their three tenants at the time, 
Um, uh, the, the Italian restaurant, which is still there, is extremely popular uh, and, be and beloved uh, in South Beach. Um, and then, of course, there, there was upstairs what, um, what Politico referred to as the, quote, gay-friendly flop house, end uh -huh. quote, uh, which was the hostel that Giancarlo, in fact, was running uh, day to day uh, for, for a while and uh, for several years, in fact. And um, so we at first thought we were dealing with a story of obviously uh, 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 sexual hypocrisy um, and abuse of power and um, another only in Miami, right? Like butterfly effect kind of story, yeah. you know, where the butterfly flaps its wings and the, the course of, of, of history is, is changed. Um, and, uh, and we were excited about all of those prospects and then when when January sixth happened, I think you know shit got dark. And 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 when when we started this hear this buzzword Christian nationalism, not something even as a poli sci major at the University of Miami was it something that I was necessarily familiar uh, with. And all of a sudden it was like everywhere, think mm -hmm. pieces and you know cover. And then and and we realized that that we could really draw, we could tell that micro story about this bizarre cuckold threesome um, and, and how it may have impacted the last two presidential elections, but also set it against the macro of this 50-year evangelical dynasty with this outsized influence on on political power. And ultimately, I like right in the middle of the thing, Dobbs happened. You know, first yeah. they leaked, you know, there was a leaked decision. And then on the last day of production, interview production on this documentary i was in washington dc interviewing megan k stack uh who had who had you know been kind of embedded with the falwells for a while post scandal and and we were interviewing her about that and the decision was officially released that day and i walked about 15 20 minutes to the supreme court and took a lot of those pictures that you see at the end of the of the documentary myself mm -hmm. so in this case you know like the butterfly that flaps its wings is uh this pool boy fucking Jerry Falwell Jr.'s wife, and then and <laughs> that then, is the butterfly, and then Michael Cohen, <laughs> and then Michael Cohen somehow gets. Uh, was it through the lawsuit that he got access to like the photo photographic evidence of it, and then supposedly that became his potential like blackmail uh, fuel uh, in order to make sure that the Falwells endorsed. Uh, Trump in the election. Four months after Giancarlo met, quote unquote, this cougar, mm -hmm. Becky Falwell, he was 20. She was more than twice his age and propositioned him. Four months later, he's getting an invite from her to fly to Lynchburg, Virginia, to Liberty University um, to meet Donald Trump in September of 2012. He was coming to give a speech at convocation. Um, Giancarlo had been raised a you know conservative Republican, went to Catholic school, was a fan of, of of Trump, the apprentice, had read the art of the deal, and was very excited about the prospect of getting his book autographed, which he did. Um, but he's also in the green room. He is on a private tour with Donald Trump, the being given by the Falwells of the Liberty Campus with Donald Trump and his entourage, which included his right-hand man attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen who Giancarlo has very distinct memories of him, of his gaze, <laughs> of his, of him, like kind of looking through him yeah, and, and just looking sideways and wondering like, who's this guy that was introduced to us as our friend from the fountain blue, 
who they're in this real estate. I mean, college aged, which is not unusual on a college campus, but is not a student, is not really like a friend of their of their adult children because he just met their adult children on this on this particular trip, his first to Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, many, instead of first of many, I should say, trips to Lynchburg, Virginia to stay on the on the the Falwell's beautiful property up there. Um, but I don't know if it was his own sort of like guilt or whatever or anxiety, but he thought that Michael Cohen had some idea that there was more than meets the eye here. Yeah. And he was right. And so Michael Cohen also maintained those relationships. Like, you know, Trump wasn't texting Jerry every day, but but Cohen aware that this man could be of some use to the to the boss. To the boss. <laughs> I kept in touch with the boy for the boss. And so he like maintained a relationship with mm-hmm. Jerry, like, you know, a, a, a texting relationship, you know, like knowing full well that this was a, a powerful man, an influential man, a wealthy man. And maybe somewhere down the line, this relationship would be of some use. And so he was right. Um, in 2014, this real estate transaction that the Falwells had gotten into with Giancarlo, of course, leads to this litigation. Uh, friends of Jean, a friend of Giancarlo, who he had brought in early to help them locate a property, who received a real estate commission for his help, was now claiming that he was owed more and had been promised more. Mm-hmm. He and, wanted an equity a, stake. Yes, he and claimed so, that he was entitled to fifty percent of Giancarlo's end. Okay, so so Giancarlo, when he when he has like a twenty five percent equity stake in this property, does that mean he gets? He gets like a portion of what the restaurant and the liquor store are like paying in rent or like. Right. It's a good question. So, right. So, so they had, so there, there was three tenants, basically. There was, the, there was the, the hostel upstairs, the Italian restaurant downstairs and the liquor store downstairs. Now, when they bought the property, um, also bought the hostel, they were looking for a commercial property that had a business in it. That yeah. Giancarlo could take take, take over and run. Yeah. Yeah, they were looking for him to have something to do. He he was only at working at the pool to put himself through college anyway at FIU, yeah. Florida International University. It was a, a job he had for about a year. So he left and went to work for the hostel full time. Jerry put up about a million bucks cash to ha- to do like capital improvements, you know, to the to improve the property, increase the value, and he was running the hostel with a manager and a staff. And um so they owned the hostel. And then they inherited the tenants, yeah, uh, the the liquor store and and the 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 Italian restaurant that were in fact paying them rent. So they had this revenue generator, which I think was not a very big revenue generator in the hostel. And then they had the tenants that were paying them rent. And there was a little, you know, uh, uh, Giancarlo got literally like three hundred dollars a week or so to quote unquote manage the property and the ho- and and help manage the hostel. Um, and then at some point along the way, he did get all of the. Um, Becky, Trey, and Giancarlo did get a, a single like one hundred thousand dollar like equity kind of payment, which mm-hmm. I, I I don't know exactly what the the details of that were. Like you said, if it was like if it was if it was a uh, you know some sort of piece of the pie, if you or, or the, the the rent or however yeah. that worked, but um, but um, but he did that, and that was the extent of what he ever generated directly from from the property was this $300 a week for a couple of years. And then that one time that lump sum, some $100,000 that all of the partners in the LLC uh, received. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, so I read that uh, there was that vanity fair piece that Gabe, 
Gabe Sherman wrote about uh, the Falwells, which I thought was interesting. That was like the most I'd heard about uh, Jerry Jr. at the time. But, um, you know, it was it was all about the Falwells perspective on this story. Like, was this movie, you know, sort of your attempt to tell Giancarlo's end of this? Well, I mean, Giancarlo had come to us well before that. Uh In fact, in fact, Jerry told uh, Megan, Megan K. Stack that the reason why they were doing the publicity at the time was to was to attempt to kill was his word, the book and and the documentary. Um, Because I think when Gabe Sherman reached out to Giancarlo to try to get comment, Giancarlo said, I'm and and participating in this documentary so that'll be you know yeah that'll be my my side so that's how the Falwells I think became aware of the book and the documentary and then you know we're, we're kind of regret you know is that annoying to you as a documentarian that it seems like the way things work now is like uh you know you get access to Giancarlo and therefore the Falwells don't talk to you and like and then the guy doing the Falwell profile like the Falwells talk to him and then uh, Giancarlo won't talk to him. It feels like th- th- like there's this thing where you have subjects that uh, will see a project as their, as their side of the story and thus they won't speak to other people. Like, is that a difficulty in trying to get, you know, the sort of uh, definitive version of it out there? Obviously, ideally, you have sort of everybody, you have all sides. You're, you're creating the most objective um, uh, uh, piece of history. I think what we've, and most comprehensive piece, I think what we've also learned from recent history, however, um, both sidesism can be toxic to journalism. Um, mm-hmm. And um, if, uh, so there's a couple of things to say about it. The first thing to say about that is that we put Giancarlo through the ringer. This wasn't about taking Giancarlo's word for it or telling his side of the story. I mean, we we spent from the moment he first reached out to basically two years later um, and then all throughout constantly demanding corroboration, receiving copious amounts of text messages, only a tiny fraction of which feature in the in the doc emails, photographs, videos. One particularly revealing one is excerpted at the end of the doc. Um, and so uh, while as a documentarian, I'm used to people lying to me, we also work to corroborate to ensure that that the material that does wind up in the story is as accurate a- a- as we can uh, as we can confirm. Um, and so, uh, and a lot of stuff that, that, that may be true or that we may believe doesn't make the cut. Um, I mean, sometimes for time, but sometimes simply because we can't corroborate it. And the attorneys are like, this doesn't, this just doesn't pass muster with respect to where where the bar is, is set uh, uh, for us. Um, and and you rest assured, lawyers were <laughs> were, were very were ever present, if not physically in the editing room, certainly spiritually, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the editing room. And um, uh, on the flip side is if you're if you're going to have people who are going to simply lie, you can't just report that like. Well, they said this. Yeah. It's like, well, if it's a lie, then is it even worth reporting? Yeah. That, that you know, that becomes, and that's been, again, the great debate of the Trump era is that like, do we have, the president said it or the president tweeted it. So it is in and of itself newsworthy. I understand that, that concept, but if it's simply a lie, you can't just report it. Like, isn't there an obligation to say, 
Trump lies, tweets that comma tweets that like yeah. so so that's where it becomes. And I'm not just saying this about the Falwells, obviously. I'm saying this about sort of the state of the art and the state of journalism, you know. And we of course straddle that line between journalism and entertainment, where the obligation is always to the truth and to follow the facts, but also to the audience to make it a you know to make it aesthetically compelling, so that they will go along and follow the facts. Uh, with us. So is it frustrating? Yeah, it's frustrating. Um, at the same time, sometimes you don't have the time to tell everybody's story. And you certainly don't have time um, or standing to, to lie to the audience, you know, unless that's part of the story, of course, you know, you know mm -hmm. where, where you're telling a story about kind of uh, storytellers, you know, uh, or, or, bull or bullshit artists, yeah. which is a legitimate, a legitimate story as well. Um, yeah. So, so like when the story came out, like the Falwell's, uh, the Falwell's attempt to deny the story was to say that, uh, like this was just a, an affair and a, and a fatal attraction situation between, uh, Becky and Giancarlo. Um, so like, why do you think it was so important for Jerry Falwell Jr. to deny the fact that he was like a swinger? Because from like a non- religious like whatever perspective like that like the the idea that he likes to watch a young dude uh have sex with his wife is like one of the least distasteful things about him like i'm just like okay that's like cool i don't it's, know whatever it's, it's arguably almost likable yeah because uh you know because at least there is there is humanity there there's there there is fetishes it's not my fetish but like at least yeah. it's like sort of like and that's the important thing about this this doc too is that like this is not to kink shame anyone because like i honestly as a miamian we love it <laughs> down here live your best life Go, uh, you know avail yourself of our amenities our nightclubs our hotels our pool attendants have had had sex with adults like yeah. you know like just like make it happen you know um uh Obviously, the 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 rub here is who they are, and and yeah. this holier than thou hypocrisy that makes it dis like to your point, that's what makes it distasteful. Like it's like that is you know the the fetish in and of itself it like shows some humanity, shows mm -hmm. some idea that you know. But like you can't go to Liberty University as the leader and you know exploit exploit Christians and Christianity for power and profit from the pulpit and then punish those students and faculty for engaging in drinking in 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 premarital sex in cohabitation in cursing in, you know <laughs> dancing when you're doing all of those things like you know like are you are you christians or is or are the 10 commandments just your bucket list and that's <laughs> certainly how they treated them down here so, like, are you able to see the sort of Shakespearean tragedy of Jerry Falwell Jr., or is he, uh, is he done, has he done too much harm uh, to be sympathetic? Because it seems like he's oh. sort of locked into this, uh, like, his, his luxurious lifestyle has sort of locked him into this culture war position in some ways. Like, he was kind of born into it. I'm a storyteller. I think he's a, a, an incredibly, you know, profoundly compelling figure. Uh, you know, and 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 a and a complicated figure, and a and a, con and a conflicted uh, figure, um, and and um, 
it's convenient now for him to cast himself as like, well, you know, I was never very religious, like my brother and like my dad and my mom, especially like that's very convenient. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I like to say this documentary is not about Christians and Christianity. It's about people who exploit Christians and Christianity. Right. And so basically that's what he's confessing to having done, you know, to, to have enjoyed the trappings of being a part of this dynasty but yet not really believe in any of this bullshit. Like, come on, dude. Like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but, but that, that cynicism and that thirst for power and control defined his family. You know, he, his father was not pro-life. His father was pro-power. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Catholics were pro-life. The evangelical, uh, the evangelicals as led by Jerry Falwell Sr. were, were looking for, for political clout mm -hmm. and power and and money he was looking to raise money which he did at about at his peak at about a rate of a hundred million dollars a year um for crying out loud so it was a very effective strategy but but like let's you know let's call it what it is and now jerry jr is like very oh, i'm gonna be candidate but like come on <laughs> like yeah. you know well, it seemed like one, one of the most interesting parts of the movie to me was when uh john carlos sort of talking about that it fell apart because he couldn't he couldn't live with the level of like lying that the Falwells were so that like that was sort of part of their lifestyle was to sort of, you know, have this public persona, which was basically a total lie. And uh, and then their private lives would be something completely different. Like that was that was not something that he seemed capable of doing. And that was part of the uh, part of where how they how they split apart. He was capable of doing it, in fact. And and I think he said, I started to hate myself. Right. I started to hate who I was becoming because he was doing it. Um, and, and I and and he the way he tells it is that it was like it was like eating him alive like that. That's that's kind of that. That's, I think, how he how he puts it, because he did it. He lied. <laughs> I mean, he lied and he he lived that double life, you know, and he lied for them. He lied to people about them, you know, um. And and he and he ultimately felt pretty shitty about it. He's got a lot of conflicting feelings. He, by his own description, is a pretty simple dude. You know, um, comes from this working class family uh, in in Westchester. This you know this this very popular um, suburb here in 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 you know in the main mainland, Miami Dade. And he just like this is a guy that pre twenty eighteen Buzzfeed story. If you Googled his name, you get three hits: right. his Twitter, his Insta, his LinkedIn. That's it. Simple, private dude. And after that, you got hundreds of thousands of quote unquote pool boy hits, you know, and stuff like ruined his life, ruined his name, ruined what he thought were any kind of future prospects, either romantically or economically. Like he just thought like the second you Google me, I'm just like, I'm fucking toxic. Mm -hmm. um, and that ate, that aided him for two years, along with him being trapped in this, in, where, which he still is in this real estate venture. Um, all the while being uh, 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 teased with the prospect of a buyout from either the Falwells or an outside buyer being promised this $600,000 net, which is all the kid really wanted <laughs> was like to be able to walk away from this yeah. after taxes and attorney's fees, like with 600 grand to like, to buy another, to like to continue his real estate venture. He went to Georgetown to, uh, for a master's in, in, in some real estate related major. And so, um, that, that's what he wanted. He wanted to start the rest of his life without separate from the Falwells. Um, he had, he had a series of, you know, two or three kind of like, uh, failed relationships with, with women, his own age 
which he 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 at least in hindsight or or at the time also kind of blamed on the dysfunctionality of this you know <laughs> cuckold threesome slash business relationship he had with the Falwells and and the liar he had to be in order to maintain that and, and protect these women from that. Um, so he just kind of got to wit's end, you yeah. know, it was, re- I mean, it was, it was a, he describes it as like three things, but I think it was like a, it was a lot of things that, that just started to, you know, e- e- just crush him. Yeah. I mean, uh, so like when it comes out that he's a pool boy, that wasn't like him being the pool boy wasn't like the, the Falwells didn't initially put that out to discredit him. Like that was, that was like a byproduct of his shady friend, uh, suing the, uh, the Falwells. That's right. So this litigation in Miami Dade over this real estate dispute, um, he um, just the fact pattern as presented in the complaint was that like the Falwells meet this kid at this twenty year old while he's working as a pool attendant at the Fountain Blue, and then they get into this real estate thing, and he reaches out to me for help, and I help him. And I understand that there's more to this relationship than just the business partnership and them being his benefactors and investors in this property. There's something romantic going on. And oh, by the way, not in the the complaint itself, but offline, lawyer to lawyer, they go, we have photos to prove what we're insinuating in this complaint in order to incentivize Jerry to settle this matter and to write a check. Um, And uh, I... freaked the fuck out i mean he's totally totally freaked out because this is before that you know and and his sister likens it this is a deleted scene if you will lilia likens it to Lewinsky situation you know she's like you don't want to be the least powerful person in a scandal you know and because yes consenting adults knowing what they get into but then find themselves in over their head you know and 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 this power disparity puts you in a situation where and look at the you mentioned it yourself the 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 fatal attraction like that was the clinton playbook that Mm -hmm. you know what what the falwells tried to do a little late in the game to Giancarlo was like was you know brand him you know a a a stalker an obsessed he was obsessed with becky um he he was a blackmailer an extortionist a fatal attraction that's exactly what hillary clinton and you know said about Monica Lewinsky and not dissimilar. So not only does it like ruin the reputation of these young people, but they also get branded for the job they held for one year in their young adult life. Yeah. Monica Lewinsky is the intern and Giancarlo Granda is the, is the pool boy. And that's, that can be incredibly demoralizing, you know, um, for them personally. And of course, you know, uh, uh, professionally. So for sure. Um, so I was reading that, According to the Falwells, like uh, Giancarlo's original pitch was that he wanted to start an organization to treat video game addiction. You sort of touched on that a little bit, but what was what did did yeah, game. did he say? It's what, a deleted scene. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Yeah, we we just it was thing we just needed to streamline. It was it was strictly a time you know a time thing runtime yeah. thing. Um, so game gaming detox. That's what it was called. The company was called Gaming Detox. And they, uh, I forget where he first, so he told them, this was the thing too, is like he let them in on this vulnerability of his. Um, you know, he told them about 
the the game, the video game addiction that he had suffered through, and kind of how he was antisocial, and and this was, I mean, Becky was just like basically his first girlfriend. Uh-huh. How fucked up is that, you know? And like, um, because he had really, you know, he had he had he had kind of escaped inward. He had dated girls, but never had like a, never said I love you to a girl. No girl outside of his family or a woman ever said I love you to him. She said that to him, you know, and and then he said it back, and um. Uh, and, and I don't think he was sure, like, did I feel this way? Did he have just have a sugar mama? Because, listen, he thought he was being opportunistic. I think he's very candid about that. You know, he, you know, um, he thought he won. I, I think he thought he won the lottery here and he was not wrong. I mean, he became a real estate millionaire, you know, like 11, 11 months after after meeting them. I said real estate millionaire because that's on paper. Real, You know, yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, um, um, he, I forgot exactly where I was going with this, um, but um he so many peculiar fucking details oh gaming detox right so come to uh york and let's talk about getting into business together and he pitched them gaming detox and junior is like well that's all well and good but that feels more like charity work that's the kind of shit you do after you're rich yeah already and in <laughs> fact liberty university pretty shortly thereafter you could google it there's stories like in Fox News about it. They put together something like this. They started uh-huh. to sort of dabble in in this dealing with like you know people with 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 device addictions and gaming addictions. Um, but he said you have to become rich first, and the way you do that because Jerry Jr. by training and trade is a real estate lawyer. So he's like real estate is the is the best way for to make your first million, as he mm-hmm. as he you know put it. He's the first effective altruist, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> That is that is exactly. And uh, uh, if you're interested in buying buying any Miami coin, I'm selling all of mine. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's the the great the greatest time for that. You might want to hold on to it a little longer. <laughs> Buy the dip, bro. Buy the dip. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I know we're going long, but I so before the Falwells endorsed Trump, wasn't uh, like Ted Cruz was like sort of the evangelical candidate of choice. Was there any inkling of why? Uh, Jerry Falwell didn't like, or like, was he already? Did he? Was there something about Ted Cruz that made him uh, inclined towards Donald Trump from the beginning? Ask, ask Al, ask Al Franken. Everybody hates Ted Cruz, <laughs> <laughs> mostly his Republican colleagues, in fact. Um, but like, um, this is why the Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, endorsement was such a shock. Not simply because he was endorsing this twice divorced playboy from new york city um five children from three different women it wasn't just that and a democrat no less an abortionist at least he was yeah um uh it 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 was also because ted cruz was in was in this uh in this primary and ted cruz was the evangelical literally the evangelical candidate his father is a pastor Mm. he chose liberty university introduced by Jerry Falwell Jr. to announce his his presidential campaign for the 2016 cycle. And so uh, he thought he had that in the bag. Um, You know, Rick Tyler, who was on his campaign at the time, who helped set up that event at Liberty and was in touch with Jerry Jr. about the endorsement. Uh, We interviewed him. It didn't make the cut. But he said, absolutely thought that it was in the, the Jerry Jr. endorsement was in the bag that 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 Cruz was going to garner that uh, a precious, you know, evangelical voting block um, that had helped elect every Republican president since Reagan. 
Uh, and as it turned out, turned out in record numbers, you know, upwards of 80 percent for Donald Trump, more so than any previous um, presidential uh, Republican presidential winner. Um, and uh, Jerry Jr. liked Donald Trump. I think Jerry and, and, and Giancarlo makes it clear that Jerry was always going to endorse Trump, no matter what Cruz and his campaign believed. He didn't like Ted Cruz. He really liked Donald Trump. He wanted to be Donald Trump. When he grew up, Jerry mm -hmm. Jr., just like just like Giancarlo did, Ugh. he wanted to be a billionaire real estate playboy. That's what he wanted, uh, Jerry Jr. That's how he conducted himself in most of his life. There was a quote from a student, a Liberty student in a Politico article a couple of years ago saying, we are not a university. We are a real estate hedge fund for Jerry <laughs> Falwell yeah. Jr. That's what we are. And that's a not unfair assessment of, of the business model of that of that school. Um and uh, Jerry Jr. made himself and a lot of other people very rich with with real estate and construction in and around uh, the campus of Liberty in, in, in Lynchburg. And um, then Trump also had this insurance policy, in, in, as Giancarlo calls it, in, in case it was ever in doubt. And that was because Michael Cohen got the call from Jerry in this real estate dispute in 2014 to come in and try to help make this problem and these pictures, uh, compromising photos, go away. And it worked. Um, Michael Cohen called in, threw his weight around, talked about bringing in the FBI, talked about knowing powerful people in Florida, uh, uh, talked about the fact that they knew that that this friend of Giancarlo's was going to law school and had planned to, to obviously join the Florida bar and, and insinuated that perhaps they could they could they could you know make some waves and and money the waters there and perhaps derail his his career plan and the shit went away for several years anyway it disappeared and the photos never saw the light of day however michael cohen was now in possession of at least some of those uh photos and um i don't think it's a it, and michael cohen himself in his book while he's backed off from that somewhat he draws he 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 create he he creates these two points in time, in history, and then draws a straight line between them. Now he's saying, yes, these two points occurred chronologically, but there isn't so much a straight line uh, uh, between them. It's hard to you know, get, get at the truth uh, with him precisely. But the way he describes it in his book is that he was doing Jerry Falwell Jr. these favors. Another favor was he got Jerry's daughter... Uh, Justin Bieber VIP tickets, concert <laughs> tickets. That was another favor that he had done for him. But he said that he was priming the pump in the in the event that again that he was going to need. You know, he he looks for people's vulnerabilities. He does them favors and he keeps that in his back pocket. I think when you're at that level and you're and you're scratching each other's back, no one has to remind the, the other that I did something for you. It's yeah. like you call me whatever I can do for you, Jerry, and then. At the Don Corleone, you know, that someday yeah. I may call him. It's just, it's just unspoken. Yeah. It's just understood, you know. And and you know, you just get that call like Zelinsky did from Donald, going, you know, "We're gonna take care of you. Just you know, this. Can you do us this one thing? You know, yeah. like yeah." So Donald Trump, uh, evangelicals turned out they loved him, even though he was obviously <laughs> not doing, you know, practicing what they preached. Jerry Falwell Jr. They loved him, even though he had this whole secret private life is one of the things that we don't understand as non-evangelicals. Like, is is that hypocrisy? 
is part of that baked in? Like, is that like, do we misunderstand that as like hypocrisy when it's really like the thing that they actually like to have this sort of public persona and private life that's completely different? I think it's a really fair question. I don't know the answer to it. Um, you know, I, I will tell you that most of the people we interviewed in this documentary are Christians. Most of them are evangelicals. One of them, uh, Randall Balmer, is a, is a pastor, an evangelical pastor. I think he's a second generation or third generation, in fact, uh, evangelical pastor. I have to look, double check that. But, um, you know, and, and, and these people seem to think that that is not Christianity and that is, and that is a perversion of Christianity, not unique to evangelicals by any by any stretch of the imagination, but not consistent with what they as Christians believe their values uh, to be. And if it is, if it has through the years somehow been baked in that it doesn't belong there and it's a cancer on on their faith. Do you want to come out and come back and jump me, jump back into the zoo? Oh, you're seeing that to that time, that time thing. Yeah. Sorry, you were talking about uh, the you know whether hypocrisy is sort of baked into the. Yeah, whole... no, I, I think I landed that thought just uh you know saved by the bell, but you know <laughs> no, I, I I think I landed that thought. I I just I think that that uh, you know um uh, be, be, better to hear it from Christians themselves, you yeah. know, and 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 here's a term I did not you know, really know about exvangelical. Ex, mm. they call me exvangelical. I didn't really know uh, that that was a thing. Um, but you know, but but people who much like um. Like uh, 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 Dustin Wall, in who we interviewed in the documentary, who was not an ex-evangelical per se, but he was a, a Liberty student, now alumni, who was part of an organization, Save 71. 71 is the year that, that Liberty was founded, who believed that, that the institution had strayed, um, that uh, uh, had either strayed or had never quite been consistent with the values it was, it was, it was meant for. Yeah. You know, um, that, that they needed to acknowledge... Um, it's the racist past that they had in order to heal from that. Uh, and they needed to acknowledge that particularly under Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, there, there was, there was something, there, there, there was some, there was some bad shit going on even before they were fully aware of, you know, the Giancarlo story. Right. I mean, wasn't one of the things that, like the school, he talked about it a little bit where he's talking about how they were in debt and he came in and he, you know, helped yeah. right the ship financially. Uh, wasn't part of that that they got a bunch of money from the Moonies? Like, <laughs> did that ever, did that oh, ever come up? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, there was, I mean, and, and, you know, Jerry Jr. gets a lot of credit for it, but he wasn't alone. Uh, you know, people who, who, who helped, I think it's not unfair to say save, you know, save a nearly insolvent institution. Uh, um, from 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 almost inevitable uh, uh, disaster, um, and they 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 wound up with a, with where I mean uh, Jerry Jr. admits to check kiting in the <laughs> in the you know in in one of the uh, the speeches that that we excerpt in in the documentary. Um, there was a lot of untoward you know uh, 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 shit going on, and and a lot of colorful characters who came, including uh, Becky Tilly, Becky Falwell's father. Who the 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 student center I think is named for him because he donated he was a huge uh, donor to the university and it turns out um, wasn't paying any income taxes either <laughs> uh, he was a he, he was a he was a tax cheat and he went to prison <laughs> uh, for it in yeah. fact 
Um, so like, so there's a lot of those types of stories around. Listen, I went to the university of Miami. I'm one to talk, Mm -hmm. you know, like sometimes, you know, sometimes universities are, are guilty by geography or guilty, (laughs) but you know, or, or, or the leadership tend to attract, uh, you know, a certain type of, uh, of character. Miami tends to attract a certain type of, of character. And invariably when you have a, a town that's almost entirely nouveau riche, you're going to have some, you know, some shady characters that wind up <laughs> their money winds up in, you know, political campaigns and in nonprofits and in, and in edu- you know, in, in educational you're, institutions. You were never on the it. uncle Luke uh, scholarship program over there. <laughs> I was not, I was not, or the, or the Nevin Shapiro uh, uh, scholarship program either. Um, so like the, you, you go over how the, the family had this running joke about Becky Falwell that she was always on the phone with uh, Giancarlo for these long, these long phone sessions to the point that they made T-shirts that said "Where's Becky?" Uh, did like did the family not know? It seemed like the kids maybe uh, had an inkling of what was going on. It was even more sordid than that. This was on family vacations to Miami Beach and the Bahamas and the Keys, elsewhere. You know where Becky would disappear mm-hmm. for hours at a time. Um, and it became a running gag amongst the, the adult children and their significant others. Where's Becky? And they made T-shirts that said, where's Becky? Uh, I could never find a picture of, of one of those. Oh, we wanted to recreate them, but but could never you never see what, what that looked like. Um, but the Falwells have told that story as well. That yeah, that is a corroborated anecdote. And um he many times she she uh, Jerry would make excuses for her that she was getting Manny Petty, she was getting a massage, she was at the, you know, working out, yeah. you know, at the, you know, swimming. She was very often times off with Giancarlo having sex, which according to Giancarlo, Jerry was okay with as long as they recorded it. And Becky had a, a Canon SLR camera that she would set on a nightstand or a, you know, uh dresser in a hotel room and record them for for Jerry, uh, according to Giancarlo. And um uh the second part of your question, Giancarlo attended both sons' weddings, one of which we, we, we show in the documentary. Um, the other one, we not only cut for time, but also like there was video online of the other wedding and we were able to find Giancarlo and, and, and there was photos on social media of him and the bride and groom and with Jerry and Becky and so there was sufficient corroboration to be like, well, I mean, there he is all over this wedding. Um, but he attended both of the son's weddings. And uh, he was the age of, I think, the youngest son, if I'm not mistaken, Giancarlo was. Uh, talks about going to the presidential suite at the Greenbrier, where, where Trey's wedding was, and having sex with Becky. That Also, at, at one of the weddings, I can't remember exactly which one, but at one of the weddings, Giancarlo tells a story that didn't make the final cut, where post-reception, you know, after yeah, the after after the after party, they were in the hotel lobby, and there was like a karaoke thing happening in the lobby bar. Everybody there was pretty much wedding party guests, you know, and everybody was well. I mean, not three, four, five, six sheets to the wind at that point, you know. Um, and he was all over Giancarlo, all over him, um, drunk sloppy just arm around the neck kind of hanging mm-hmm. hanging off of him this is how Giancarlo describes it and it made him like crazy uncomfortable because he started to get the feeling that you 
we're having, which is like, is this like just like a like the worst kept secret? Is like everybody else like know about this is in on and, and I'm like I've been keeping the secret. I'm lying. I'm playing it cool. Like you can see him. He's sitting in the last pew of the chapel. You know during during the wet like. He's trying to not be a spe- they sat him back to back with Becky at neighboring table. Like he's trying to like be subtle and she was not ever. Also at the Trump Hotel, you know, later on he talks about that. So I describe this. Did the kids know about it or not? I don't know. But yet, like Giancarlo and you would say, how could they not at least suspect something? Yeah. Right. And then um and then I, I described the movie, uh, the documentary, as the movie Get Out meets the Righteous Gemstones. Yeah. You know, Giancarlo was... I mean, it's impossible was, not to think of the Righteous Gemstones. Like, yeah, you watch this and think, like, oh, the Righteous Gemstones is playing it, like, un- they're under. It's a documentary. It. Yeah. It's a document. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's no question it's based on, in no small part, on on the Falwells. I mean, that, you know, um, that is basically, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Jerry, I mean, uh, 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 John Goodman is basically Jerry Sr., you know, Um and and funny enough, he do, you know he did have these sort of two bumbling sons, one of whom was the man of God, the other of whom was like, well, was Jerry, <laughs> Jerry Jr. Um, and Jonathan, in fact, is still Thomas Road Baptist Church because you know while Jerry Sr. did both gigs, you know, was the president of the university and of course uh, of the man of God, you know, uh, 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 at Thomas Road, he split those uh, those responsibilities amongst his kids, ba- based very. Real, I mean, very honestly, on their personalities and their expertise. Jonathan being a pastor and Jerry Jr. being the real estate lawyer that clearly was better suited to the the business of the business as opposed to the church part of the uh, you know of the, of the business. But you know, Giancarlo was very much you know honey trapped into this world of religion, power, privilege, uh, in the inner circle of the Falwells, rubbing shoulders with the most powerful people in the world, and then. The red flags got more frequent and larger until he had that get out. I got, you know, I got to get the fuck out of here moment. Um, Do you worry that like, I don't know, 10 years from now when someone's doing a documentary about uh, Jerry Falwell Jr.'s kids and they're talking about the drama, uh, the trauma of finding out where Becky actually was. Like when they're finding out that she was always gone because she was uh, fucking this pool boy that they're going to be playing clips from uh, your documentary where... (laughs) Where they're, you know, where they're revealing it all. That's like a general, like, kind of state of nonfiction filmmaking right now, which is where we used to make documentaries about shit that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, or hundreds of years ago, you know. Now, it's like, we're, we're in this, like, this cycle where it's like, there's probably 11 FTX documentaries yeah. being made right now as we speak. And like, it's too fucking soon, yeah. you know. You, yeah. The story's you need, not over yet. No, the story's not fucking over yet. And stories need to ripen even after they're over. Like people need time. They need yeah. space. They need perspective. They need distance, objectivity. They need like, you know, and and it's like the documentary. I I could make this documentary again 10, 15, 20 years from now. And it might it's the same story, but it would be a very different documentary you know and and the perspective of even the people that we interviewed would be very very different and the way they would perceive the story or even tell the story might be very very different so that's just sort of the state of like it really honestly it really feels like instead of like what we ordinarily you know like yes it's still the type of thing we do which is synthesis journalism and we stand on the shoulders of 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 extraordinary reporters who did like you know contemporaneous 
uh, reporting on, on, on these stories, but it also feels like we're part of the first draft of history. Yeah. Which me, which means that there's very much more to document and more to tell. And, you know, and, and as I always say, the best documentaries are only the start of a conversation, you know, and, and, and I think that's probably true now more so than ever where docs are just being made too soon. Yeah. I mean, do you have to, do you have to avoid that? I mean, like there's the Netflix had the, everybody was tripping over their dicks to do the, uh, the GameStop story as a documentary. And Fire Festival, was, yeah. And it was like, yeah. this isn't over yet. Like, this story, like, we don't even know why they shut down trading on that platform that they all used yet. Like, you don't even know who owns this shit yet. I don't know. It just seemed like... I'm I'm not I'm not a buyer, so I don't dictate the market. You know, it's a buyer's market. And, and is it ideal? It is far from far from ideal, I think, I think both for documentary filmmakers and for the subjects. Uh, you know uh, themselves, both the human subjects and the subject matter. Uh, you know of, of the history that we're that that we're responsible for for documenting. Um, so yeah, this becomes part of the documents. You know, part of the reporting that people may very well, when they're doing future documentaries on the same or similar uh, 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 subject matter, they'll they will rely in part on on the the archive materials that we have now. Uh, you know, uh, uh, left behind. Um, but you know, I, I tough when you're pitching docs, when everybody asks the why now question in the room, you know, in the pitch, like why now? And, um, if you're like, well, it gives, it's, it's hot, it's happening. It just happened. Everybody's talking about it. You know, I would argue that there's a big difference between something that is topical and something that is relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think you want to make documentaries about shit that's that 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 is relevant and not necessarily topical. Um, so and and takes time and distance and space, and nobody wants to. What what is the um what would uh, you know? Uh, uh, Warren Buffett was once asked, like, you have a formula. It is a phenomenally successful formula. Why don't people just do what you did? Uh, what do what you do? And and Warren Buffett said because nobody wants to get rich slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's where we are. <laughs> right on. Well, uh, I appreciate you talking to me. Um, I'm probably just going to post this as a podcast again, if that's all right with you. Just because I mean, I'll, sure. I'll try and write it up, but it's going to be a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work now, sure. but yeah. Yeah, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Cool. I appreciate it. Um, love the movie. Thank you, dude. I appreciate it. Th- thank you for covering it, as always. I really, I really, I really do appreciate it. it, was, it you know, it's always tough to, in this attention economy, you know, to get people to cover to cover stuff. And, it's and tough I re- I really... in November, too, especially, because <laughs> yes. it's just like, yes, oh, exactly. every single, we released all of our movies in the next four weekends. Like, cool, thanks. That's yes. great for me. Yes. Yes. It's, there is not enough content, obviously. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I just, you know, I, I, there are probably seven more Star Wars and Marvel series premiering in the next seven days. So I can, I can only imagine, but I, I, it means a lot. I, I, I always, I always appreciate it. And I always, I always enjoy hearing your, your perspective on, on, well, on everything, but, but our, our work in particular, because I always, I'm like, wonder what Vince is going to say <laughs> <laughs> about, about this one. So thanks, dude. And good night and good cup. Yeah. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Take care.